so January the 1st, 1943, um, I, I started RAE. Now, on January the 2nd, sorry, we'd been through the induction and I'd been, Prescott and I had been separated. I was sent into aerodynamics. He went into what was then the Instruments and Photographic IAP department. And I went into aero department and was then handed on down and down and down into aerodynamic flight section, flight division, and from the flight division into the high-speed flight section. The high-speed flight section consisted of four people. The boss, a chap called Smelt, who was away in America at the time, Ron Roy Smelt. His, who was a double first at Cambridge, a wrangler, ever so clever. Frank Smith, who was also a Cambridge mathematician, Cambridge engineer, I guess, Smithy, who was smelt sidekick. Dennis Higton, who was an, an RAE apprentice engineer and was the chap that was the practical man. And Miss Fougere, Christelle Fougere, another Cambridge mathematician, who did all the calculations and I was attached to this bunch. And, as I say, Smelt was away in America. Higton was the practical engineer. Very, very good practical engineer. And been through the RAE as an apprentice. And he and I have been very close ever since. But on this occasion, Smithy took me on board and said, well, yeah, come and join us, yeah, but um, I don't know whether it'll be permanent, you'll have to wait until the end of January, when Smelt comes back from America, but um, sit in the corner there and push a slide over backwards and forwards, do some calculations, help Miss Fougere with these calcs, because I had joined the little group that, amongst other things, were doing the flight tests on the Gloucester E2839, the Gloucester Whittle. It's in the Science Museum. Yeah. It's in the Science Museum. You know it well. Um, but that was another significant point. I was in on the ground floor of something that was going to shape the future of aeronautics. Pure chance. And those Whittle engines, W12B, we were flight testing them. They, they, um, the results would little photograph come to little photo observers which we built ourselves tiny little cameras, little things and uh, they sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't bring the results, develop the films we were doing all of this and then Miss um, Fu and I would push the slide rule um, converting these results into something that made sense and then Smith would do the analysis until Smelt came back Smelt came back from America at the end of that month and was appalled to find that he had been landed with some civil engineer from a red brick university, a place called Liverpool, despite the fact that Smelt was from Durham himself, and had a, you know, son of a minor, and that sort of thing, again, the same sort of background, but he'd been to Cambridge, very, very bright, tremendous. And, um, no, there's no way that he was having someone like, someone who read brick and didn't know the first thing about aeronautics. All right, he could do a few mathematical calculations, 
wasn't bad at that at all. I was conscious of it, um, and um, uh, made to feel some, something junior. Eh? It was not just not just Oxford. It was the fact that you were a civil engineer and didn't know anything about aeroplanes. And he, here you were in a, a high-speed flight test section dealing with um, the, the new generation of aeroplanes, a jet. Um, and A, you knew nothing about that. B, you were not from Oxbridge. Um, you were red brick. And you felt that, or I felt, that this was a challenge. I was determined that um, I could be not as good as they were, because I, I think that intrinsically... Um, smelt was brighter than I was, and still with really brighter anyway. But um, different sort of mind from me, smelt, and that's why smelt and Mr. Smith needed Higton, because Higton was the practical engineer. They were the bright boys. They were the ideas men. Smelt in particular, musician, um, keen on electronics, which was very new to us all then, and he would toss out the ideas. And, and Higgy, Higgy's job was to do something about them. And Charmley was somewhere in between. But, Smelt said, not on your Nelly will I have this bloke with us who knows nothing about aerodynamics or aeroplanes. And I was sent across to the small wind tunnels to learn something about what made an aeroplane tick. So from the end of January until um, about, as far as I was concerned, forever, I was banished from this practical that I've got to like of working with aeroplanes, fitters, in the hangar, um, installing things in aeroplanes, flight testing, all the excitement, mixing with the pilots. I went across to the small wind tunnels with Miss Bradfield, who had a reputation, um, very clever at aerodynamics, but really... Um, ran the small tin tunnels very strangely um, to learn something about aerodynamics. And, you know, as I got over there and found that, as far as they were concerned, an aeroplane was something that just was hung upside down on a few wires in a wind tunnel. It didn't fly, never intended to fly. Um, there it was upside down, I thought. Anyway, um, I learned a lot. I did, there's no doubt about it, Smelt was right. Um, I needed to learn. I went to night school um, for the, at, at, at the same time as in the small wind tunnels. At the RE Tech. At the RE Tech, uh, that's right, exactly, at the RE Tech. The aerodynamics professor or chap was a Dr. Harris, whose wife, Mary, is married to Handel Davis, which you mentioned earlier. Um, but Dr. Harris was the, the lecturer. And so I learned all about um, the trans... And I couldn't really understand what relevance a lot of it had to what I wanted to do, which was the flight testing. Because this was Yakovsky transformations, um, 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 laminar boundary layers, turbulent boundary layers, and it, it all seemed a little academic as far as I was concerned. However, I went through it and um, passed my course, whatever the course was, and it got to about um, October... And we're talking 1943 still. And I'd been away nine months, or the end of the year. And Miss Bradfield asked me to go in to see her. And um, she said, um, Smelt has asked for you back again. That um, from all that he's heard, 
and from what I've said about the progress you've made whilst you've been here, um, he would like you back again, because we think that you're probably better suited to the sort of crude flight testing work um, than you are here in the ice atmosphere of the, the wind tunnels. What was Miss Bradford's background? Miss Bradfield was. Bradfield. She was the head of the department, head of the aerodynamics department, was a Dr. Douglas, G.P. Douglas, and Miss Bradfield ran the wind tunnel division. I would guess, in if you, uh, on the day, G.P. Douglas would have been a DCSO, and Miss Bradford would have been an SPSO, and the head of aero flight was an SPSO. Uh, that's the sort of structure in those days. Now, if I go to aero flight, you come down for an SPSO who happened to be Professor Duncan, who'd come in from outside and was a, was essentially had been a flutter, a structure, an aeroelastic man. Aeroflight then split into a number of sections, one of which was run by Smelt as a PSO. Smithy would have been an SSO or something. I was a JSO, as I think, well, Miss Fu, probably JSO or an SO, nothing more. Well, Dennis Higton would have been an A3. He would not have been allowed to be an, a scientist because he, he'd come up as an engineer, as an apprentice. There's no way. At that time, um, did you have many connections with other sections? Uh, for example, with structures, radio? Very little. Um, at that stage, um, um, we're, in, we're at 43 now, 1943. I was in aero flight then until 1955. Now, over that period, then you, you could re recognise the need for greater contact with these other departments. You mentioned two that are important because in connection with some of the experiments that I was doing in flight, I needed to have a radio link between the aircraft. So it, it was a business need that drove me to learn more about radio department, radio activities, and smelt was very keen on electronics, as I said, so that there was a push from smelt. There was also a need to know something about the structural side because I became, quote, an expert on things going wrong with aeroplanes at high speed. They used to shake and break up or whatever. And there was always a question as to whether the, the, the cause of this was aerodynamic or structural. And a very close friend, I'm sure Chu would have, one would have mentioned it, Ted Broadbent, who was an aeroelastic, a flutter man, he and I used to go round the industry doing a Tweedledum Tweedledee act as to whether the, he would, we, we were concerned with accidents or concerned with aeroplane shaking, um, what was the frequency, uh, was it regular, was it a buffeting, was it a structural, what was the exciting force, where was it coming from, come on John, it's aerodynamics, no not Ted, it's the structural response. We, we Together, we were a very powerful pair in sorting out what was going wrong in flight on many, many occasions. So, the structural side, the radio side, yes. One side which, which was going to figure prominently later, I didn't have any contact with it then, was the automatic control side. I mentioned that because that's where Tom Prescott had gone to when we came down from Liverpool. He'd gone into that department. And in 1955, when I was moved to Martlesham Heath, who should I link up again with but Tom Prescott? So, 
We're now, the whole of my 12 years in aerodynamics, from 43 to 55, was tremendous. Um, exciting, flight testing, aircraft, research aircraft, you know, the whole post-war era. Money seemed to be no object at all. Um, research aircraft were being built specifically to try to solve whether the future was going to be thin straight wings, swept back wings, delta wings, delta with a tail or without a tail, um, sweep back 40 degrees, 70 degrees, whatever. Experience coming back from Germany, um, post-war experience from Germany, German scientists coming across, blending them in to the way in which we worked, learning from them the way they had worked, um, their aircraft coming across, experimenting with their aircraft, trying to find out all this business about swept back wings. And certainly, we in the high-speed section, we five, at that stage, we'd grown a bit, a bit um, bigger as well. Um, we first started life in the main aerodynamics building, which was central in RAE. And then because of our work on the Gloucester E2839, this this secret jet-propelled aeroplane, we were moved out to a hangar and an office out on the, that was built for us out on the airfield. And then we had the secure, a separate security arrangement. So we became somewhat isolated, physically in that sense. It was called T-hangar, t T-flight, turbine flight, is what it meant to be. And... We not we were not only dealing with uh, um, the jets, the the development of the jet engine and the jet airplane, but we were also looking at all the problems of trying to go through the speed of sound and all the characteristics of a transonic. Did, and you, that, did you know during the war that this shaking in dives was the sound barrier, or was that...? Oh, yes. Uh, so the Tweedledee and Tweedledum was just a, a put-up job? It, it was part... No, well, not a put-up job, no, in the sense that um, as you get near the speed of sound, then the, the, the flow starts, you get shockwaves forming, and those shockwaves can cause flow separations. Those flow separations start hammering the structure. The structure then picks up. If it's got a resonance frequency, then the thing becomes unstable and the tape then drops off, or something of the sort. So this was the, the act that we'd done. The forcing energy was coming from the air and the aerodynamics. The response was coming from the structure. Um, and what we were about, and in particular what I was about, was the wind tunnels were not providing the design information because they were choking. The high-speed tunnel was choking near the speed of sound. The shock waves that were coming off the model were blocking the tunnel, and so you're just not getting the the, the, the results. And the NPL, the National Physical Teddington, were doing tunnel tests which showed that you couldn't get through, you couldn't go through the speed of sound. This is Bill Hilton. That the drag it. rise was such that there was a wall there. Now, we, uh, um, in our Spitfire test, me if you like, showed that that was not true. And, you know, there's, there's some lovely... I brought this sort of thing out, just a research on high-speed aerodynamics of the RAE, 42 to 45. And um, um, you will find in here, come, there's the tunnel work, and there are all the, the results, and I get this... Austin Mayer edited it, um, because he liked writing. I never did like writing. 
I wanted to get on and do things, you know. So, Sir John, we got to the period when you were just about to leave Farnborough to go, I think, to Montreal Heath. Can you take the story up from there? Yeah, surely. Um, that that was 1955 when I um, moved to Martlesham. And it's quite interesting the way it happened, I suppose, because um, I'd had these exciting um, 12 years in the end, at the end of which I was something of an expert on high-speed transonic flight testing of aeroplanes and the characteristics of how they behave, how you might design them to ease the period through the speed of sound. And in the course of this, I'd become um, quite involved with the products of Gloucester Aircraft Company down in Gloucester, um, starting with the Meteor and then through to the Javelin and the Thin Wing Javelin. And they had offered me a job towards... Um, it wasn't the first offer I'd had. Um, I, I'd been offered a job across in Canada in my days in aer aerodynamics. But the, there came this offer of, to be the um, chief technician or chief engineer, something of that sort, I can't remember now, down at Gloucester. And um, Dick Walker was the chief designer of Gloucester, and he'd done the right thing, and he'd approached the director of the RAE, who happened to be Arnold Hall, um, now it's just died, um, Arnold, um, and he was director at the time, and he asked me to go to see him. And I didn't know what this was about, and I had... I was a bit of a wild boy, I suppose, in those days, because I'd been hauled up before him once or twice before, for doing things I shouldn't do in the RAF mess and such like. And I thought, what is it this time? Um, and he said, um, I've just had this approach from Gloucester to see if I would, if I, they could approach you with a job. And he said, I said, yes, of course they could. But he said, my advice to you is to say no because you're doing quite well within the government service and we have ideas and we have thoughts of what you might do next. So my advice to you would be to say no and stay where you are. And I did. And um, Gloucester were very disappointed they got the offer, but I um, stayed where I was. And true enough, um, before very long I had to go and see him again. And I thought, ah, what now? And this time it was to say that I was being moved from Aeroflight. I'd had 12 years in aerodynamics, a lot of it spent in transonic and early supersonic aerodynamics, and that it was time I had a move. And the, the system the, um, um, had decided I should be moved, and I was going to go to the other end of the speed range, and instead of trying to get through the speed of sound, I was now going to try and get aircraft down in bad weather at Martlesham Heath. I'd never heard of Martlesham Heath, and thought, what on earth is all this about? Um, and there was a promotion in it, and I would be um, running an airfield with aeroplanes, with pilots, with technical people, in areas that I had no experience with so far, and added to all of that, within two years I had to close Martlesham Heath and move the unit and the people that were there to Bedford. Um, this gorgeous place up at Bedford, which was expanding rapidly and had a glorious future, and that's where I, I would go. Um, talked it over with my wife, and obviously said yes, a promotion. And there was this end, this aspect of um, running a station, running a place in administrative terms, as well as a technical program that 
And I suppose the other attraction of this was that you were a hundred odd miles away from Farnborough and from the director of Farnborough and all that went on. So off we went to Martlesham and that was, I went up there in the um, Easter of 1955. So Martlesham, um, lovely little spot, um, small technical outfit, dealing at that time with um, oh, the rapid landing of fighter aircraft and also the elements of a system for getting aircraft down in bad weather. Now, it was aimed at a military requirement for the V-bombers and the theory was that um, the V-bombers were all at dispersed airfields around the country and the weaponry that they were going to carry, the nuclear weaponry, such as it was, was at different locations. And they needed to fly into those locations to pick up their bomb load and go. Once they'd gone, then there was no interest in getting them back again, particularly, so the means of landing after they delivered their weaponry wasn't the issue. The issue was there was a need to persuade the enemy that we could pick up those bomb loads in any weather whatsoever. That no matter what happened, we could get these aircraft, which they would know were dispersed, and we could get them into the pick-up points, whatever the weather. So there was this need to persuade uh, the enemy that we had a capability of all-weather landing V-bombers at certain airfields. So that was the military requirement. And, um, all right, fair enough, um, as part of um, a threat and part of a defence, fair enough. And so we were looking at the radio, the various means of guidance in when you couldn't see, and then the way in which you get that sort of a big, heavy aeroplane with certain aerodynamic problems. And why I had been chosen to go up there was because they didn't have anyone who knew anything about aerodynamics. They've got radio people, they get auto, they've got automatic control, autopilot people, but they didn't have anyone who would understand the way in which that aeroplane behaved or could behave at low speed. And there were already um, some problems with the aeroplane. Now, why it was thought that I would know anything about the low speed characteristics of a big aeroplane when I'd spent my time with little aeroplanes going fast and trying to make them go faster is beyond me, I suppose, other than that someone, and Hall maybe, I don't know, someone in London, presumably when I look back now, had seen something in me which led them to believe that I needed to be stretched in terms of uh, technical management, in terms of broadening my scope, my field, whatever. Um, and again, it, it was it was obvious I had a tremendous amount to learn. I knew about flying aeroplanes, yes. I knew how to handle pilots. I knew how to persuade them to do quite dangerous things. Um, um, somehow, I could gain their confidence. Um, and it's quite interesting because the the wing commander um, that ran the, the the air force unit up there was about oh three hundred strong. Um, because as well as conducting its own work on blind landing, getting aircraft down in bad weather, the airfield was also used as a base for flying aircraft up the coast 
for a bombing range associated with weaponry. So we had, I had two, I had a bombing unit and I had a blind landing unit essentially. And, and this was still under the auspices of Farnborough. Farnborough. Still Farnborough. R.E.E. Oh yeah, R.E.E. R.E.E. Yeah, still R.E.E. And the the um, weaponry was armament department at, at R.E.E. And the blind landing was my responsibility to the deputy director. Not uh, to aerial department? No, 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 no. This is, I was now, I'd been elevated to head of department. How about grade were you there? SPSO. SPSO. And that was another, because I'd go back to Farnborough for heads of department meeting, surrounded by all the DCSOs and even CSOBs as they were then, running bigger departments, and there was um, Charlie coming along from the sticks up at Martisham with a unit, um, albeit, I think the, the, play was, the technical element was about 30, oh, 30 or 40 strong, that sort of side, a typical SPSO charge in that sense but with the administrative, the management responsibility of an airfield, like a group captain. And that's SPSO equivalent group captain, if you like, running a station and with a wing commander that looked after the RAF element, which is about 300 strong. And um, he was um, Johnny, E.A. Johnson, and he's just written a book. Um, in my element it is, there it is. Um, and in it he talks about um, this character being posted up from Farnborough, and they all were worried because he was, he was aerodynamic, he didn't know anything about getting air, get, about landing. And he said, when I first met him, um, I've forgotten, there's almost a quote in there. There was this big chap, big rugger playing bloke, and fortunately he was sensible enough to listen to what I had to say. Lovely. And, um, as he says, we got on very well together, because he was obviously, this is he, he's obviously intelligent, obviously willing to learn, and um, listen to what I had to say, and we made a good combination. And that is perfectly true. He and I were very happy, we became personal friends. Um, he got a, um, before I moved to Bedford, he got a posting somewhere else, and um, we became proxy parents to his youngsters that he left behind at school. So, um, he, well retired now, written a book, living down at um, Eastbourne or on the south coast, and um, lost touch with him now until um, I was reminded that this book had been written. So, um, the thing that we, we, we were making progress at Martlesham on this question of the problems of big aircraft coming in when they couldn't see. You needed a guidance and then you needed to couple the aircraft automatically, we thought, to the guidance, to that guidance system. As the end, um, as the Cold War, I don't know what it was, but I, I suddenly thought there's, there's not a lot of... Yes, there's a point in this, certainly, but we've got something here which has got a, a greater application to civil aviation than ever to military. And... We started thinking, I got the chaps thinking about what had to be done to a military system to make it suitable for civil aviation. We had the two airlines then, BEA and BOAC, and my, I started talking with them, and I started talking with the CAA, the Civil Aviation Authority, or whatever it was, to see how interested they were in, see what the market might be for this sort of thing. And essentially, 
and BOAC weren't really interested because they didn't make enough landings in airfields where weather was a problem and when they did the pilots wanted to do it themselves because they they made insufficient landings to keep themselves in practice anyway not put that very well but that that's essentially it BEA on the other hand operating around Europe with tridents in those days they were more interested they did the sums and we helped them with the sums and showed them how much they could save if they could get into um, various major airports and get their own aircraft back for servicing rather than have them hold up um, somewhere in Frankfurt, Dusseldorf, wherever um, and persuaded um, BEA to show some interest and some support. So, 57, on time, 1957, off to Bedford. Um, why was this move done? Was it government policy? Or was it Martlesham closing? Um, a bit of both. I, I suppose I'd relate those two things. It was government policy to almost to close Martlesham. The, the background to that I wouldn't know. Um, whether it was thought to be expensive to be keeping um, Martlesham going, whether it was a problem between what was, were we Ministry of Supply or what, and the RAF of those days, I don't know, wouldn't know. Um, but what was clear was that there was the, um, I'd put it the other way round, that Bedford was seen to be the place of the future for a lot of research. Now, as well as that, and, and the real point here, Bedford had 10,000 foot of runway, um, 100 yards wide. Um, just the sort of place for operating, if you try and get things down in bad weather, Martlesham had a little runway, and you certainly couldn't start doing work on big transport aircraft there. You had to be somewhere else where you could make mistakes, where things could go wrong and not not um, be at risk. Um, and so I was quite keen for it to happen and got a team up at Bedford putting in the installation, uh, the guidance system, and we... Um, and at that stage, the, the the conclusion that we'd come to was that um, to satisfy the civil requirements, where before, from a military point of view, you just had one um, channel of command in the aeroplane to get the, the safety requirement and meet the civil safety requirement, you needed something which, if the main channel went, you needed a standby, and if you then, well, how did you know that the standby was going to it? So you needed three to take a vote. And so we got into all the um, theory and the analysis of how to make um, automatic systems in a risk situation, how you satisfy the integrity. And that is something which has now gone through into all sorts of different areas, not only within aerospace, but outside that profession completely. It was the first time that serious risk analysis was being done on anything like this sort of scale. And out, out of this image, of course, all the thing that's been quoted so many times, that you had to be aiming for something like 1 in 10 to the 7s. Um, because the, the argument that the CAA took was that, from their statistics, that was the sort of rate at which an engine might fail. 
um, once in 10 to the 7th hour, a serious engine failure. And we had to be aiming for something that was no worse than, than, than that. So there was the target. Now, that really, you, you are now thinking quite differently. And I was in good terms with the RAF. I was ta- I'd been talking with them about the operation requirements area, what it was they had wanted, got their ideas straight on V-bombers. And then, um, perhaps very naughty, they were um, producing the requirement for a large military transport called the Belfast Shorts, Belfast. And I persuaded them that they ought to go for automatic landing. Um, in this Belfast, because it was a transport, it was going to operate very like a civil aeroplane, and I was able to raise the money for looking at the civil problems of automatic landing on a military ticket, and was able to persuade Smiths down in Cheltenham to put some of their own money in, because I could help them along on the autopilot side, Um, in the aeroplane, to go and look at all the problems of a multi-channel automatic system in the aircraft that would be suitable um, for civil application, but we could do it on a military ticket. And that was a very significant step. Um, And there we were now, we're up at Bedford, um, and 55, and I was now convinced that the future of the unit lay on the civil side rather than the military side, and that I was now um, promoting the fact that we had within our grasp um, the means of getting aircraft down in thick fog. I was standing on international platforms with ICAO, with IATA, um, and um, um, going out from Bedford to various international conferences, and on the platform with me, or either before me or after me, would be the chap, the American, who was promoting the way that they thought it could be done, which was still sticking with radar as a means of guiding the aircraft down. We had gone away from radar to the international landing system, ILS, using that as the guidance system. There were things that we had to do to it, to make to meet this integrity requirement as well as the performance requirement, but um, there it was. So um, um, this chap and I, he would stand up and say how good their system was. I would stand up and say how good ours was. And as ever, when these things happen, after we'd argued furiously in public, we'd go away and have a drink together, and we have been the best of friends. He worked for Bell, Bell Aircraft, up near Buffalo very close to Niagara Falls. At that stage I became in Bedford very friendly with the group captain who, as I say, was running the operational requirements in OR, group captain Andrew Humphrey, significant, and also the chappie from Smith's who had left BOAC and had gone down to Smith's, and he was a pilot, he was the pilot who had introduced the Comet into BOAC, Michael Maginley. Um, and 
he had was now working at Smith's and was in charge of their automatic landing activities. So I had here a very a very capable group captain from the Air Force and a very capable civil pilot um, down at Smith's and myself at Markham. And between us, we stirred this pot around fairly successfully for quite some time. Um, the man in London, D.A. Nav in London, I, uh, was Bill Broughton, if these names be anything, and the D.G. in London was Willie Wilson, who had previously been the head of armaments department in RAE, for whom I provided a service in flying aeroplanes for him at um, up from Martyrdom. And he was now the director general in London and supportive for all that I was trying to do on this new idea of um, getting aircraft down in, in zero, zero conditions. Um, having great arguments with the CAA as to whether it could be done and how it could be done. A very useful pilot in British EA at that stage, Frank Ormondroyd, who was convinced that um, there was something here that BEA ought to pursue, so he was working on them. Um, and um, we were all doing sums on the marketing element of it, how much they would save, and so on. And on the practical side, I was having great fun. I was, um, I was, as you can see, I think perhaps from what I've said, that SPSO level and the responsibility I had, I might think I enjoyed that more than anything else. I, I subtly enjoyed my Pirinero flight, without any doubt. But now, I was at a position where I still was sufficiently close to the technical aspects to make a contribution with the boy, with the, with the team. Be it radio, not, not radio as much as the automatic control side, I could certainly make contributions to. The radio was still a bit uh, remote, and the chap there that I relied upon was Keith Wood, um, very much, and he and I are still very good friends now. But I could still make a contri technical contribution, but I was in a position where I could also appreciate the policy issues. And I, as I was talking with the group captain from OR, talking with Wilson in London and Broughton, I was close to, to know that you've got to do some you know, massaging of the system to make things happen, be it military or civil now, with, with BEA. So you're, you're doing that, and you're also handling the technical issues that were coming up, and the, 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 the involvement with industry, getting industry excited about the things that they could happen. You were in the middle, trying to manipulate this lot along, at the same time as you were dealing with a subject that inherently was very risky. And we were doing a lot of the preliminary work on little aeroplanes, and then you put the whole lot together as a system into the right sort of aeroplane in which you wanted to use it. And that right sort of aeroplane on the, on the military side we were going for um, um, doing a lot on the Canberra, and on the for the civil side, we were working away on a twin-engine, a Varsity, just a twin-engine aeroplane. Avros up at Manchester were putting a system into a Vulcan, so at Bedford we could now fly Vulcans in and out, which you couldn't have done at Martyrdom. Um, and so you're getting experience with four engines, you're doing a lot yourself with twins, looking at um, how to make it, how to provide the integrity 
And this is important now because the same questions are being asked about how you do this if you are using a satellite for the guidance system now. Um, and using you can get the accuracy out of it, but can you get the integrity um, for a guaranteed service when you in zero zero conditions? And I'm, I'm involved in that sort of argument now, which is interesting enough. Um, so that I I thoroughly enjoyed that period where you where I I could extend myself conceptually into a system and at the same time having to take a lot of other people along with you and persuade them that this was worth following. Now, um, I, we would we set up, I set up, I suppose, I, um, a night flying program where the Met people would warn us if it was likely that there was fog. And so um, I was on very good terms with the hangar um, and the foreman of the hangar, um, and still exchange Christmas cards with him. And the main electrician up there was a great chum of mine. I used to go into the hangar at Christmas time when we were having a party, breaking up for Christmas, and play chess with them. And they used to think that was wonderful, that here was this, this bloke that was way up there as far as they were concerned, would come into the cool room in the hangar, and with a beer, um, have a game of chess with them, that sort of thing. Um, and Rex Buckley was the um, foreman, and he had been persuaded that there was a great future in this automatic landing thing, and yeah, he'd get aircraft ready for you at any time. And so we had this system set up whereby um, the Met people from not just Bedford, but around the country, would give us some idea as to whether um, fog was expected, and we'd put the system on standby. By the system, I mean everyone. Air traffic control at Bedford, the hangar, aeroplanes, pilots, ourselves. And then about, I can remember, oh, so many, many, several occasions when at two o'clock in the morning, then um, um, the, the, the duty officer, if you like to call him that, would ring me at home and say, yeah, you know, it's all systems go, we're off, are you coming? And um, Bedford might be clear, but take a particular, London was clamped. Heathrow was clamped completely. And off we went, got airborne, um, all rather excited, and um, you then get Heathrow um, on the, on the um, air traffic, on, on the radio, coming up and saying, you know, giving a call sign and saying, um, you're welcome here at Heathrow, there's no one else flying, even the birds aren't flying, um, come on, let's have you. And you then, you're beginning to make progress with the right sort of people. Now, all this builds up, I suppose, to um, 50, we went to Bedford in 57, it got to 62, and now it is a well-established program. And um, we got the system being put by Smiths into Trident. And Ormondroyd was the, Frank Ormondroyd was within BEA, was handling the transfer across and, and um, he was going to be the man that was going to be pursuing it in the Trident, so he was up working with us. The Americans had been persuaded that our way of doing it was better than the way that Bell thought it should be done, so we had an aeroplane, a DC-6, across from America to install um, the so-called British system in it. Um, it then went back to the Federal Aviation Agency for tests over there, and 
the, the momentum was growing now, without any doubt at all. So the end of 62, the end of 61 came, yep, 61, and uh, I found that the, the system had decided that I should go on to the Imperial Defence College for 12 months, 1962, we had for civil aviation, and a lot of computers had moved forward in this period, we were doing a lot of simulations, gathering information from simulations, running um, what-if sort of situation, if the wind blew, if the wind dropped when the aeroplane was near the ground, would the system cope with it, suppose there's a ground shear, all of that sort of thing. Um, and at the same time, we had a chap called Frank Gill looking at all the theoretical, numerical analysis associated with meeting this one in ten to the sixth, one in ten to the seventh, um, with three or four lanes of, or channels of system working, not working, whatever. And left them with it, essentially. 